gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. This is kind of a, it's not a new situation, but it's a kind of a rare situation for me insofar as I am mostly well-rested when I'm recording this podcast. (laughs) And um, I have too much that I know I want to talk about rather than figuring out on the fly. So for all I know, this will be a disaster because that is usually what happens to me when I have a plan for this podcast or a G file is I get caught up in between the expectations in my brain and the reality. So we'll see what happens. And I'll probably write about some of this stuff tomorrow and maybe it'll make more sense to talk about it after I write about it because that usually helps me. But anyway, I had a crazy week so far. So I'm recording this late Thursday afternoon on Monday. I flew out Monday night to uh, New Altwell to Columbus um, because on Tuesday I did two events, both with Ezra Klein of the New York Times um, for, I think it's called the New Albany Community Foundation, a truly wonderful bunch of people. Every time I spend any uh, significant, substantial time in Ohio with sort of community leaders in Ohio or just real Ohioans, even Jack Butler, I come away liking Ohio more and more. Um, I am not... Um, the Ohio supremacist some people are, but I want to live in a world where Ohio supremacists exist. I think a little sort of particularism and localism about your home state, your home communities is good. Um, Sometimes even a lot of it is good and it helps make this a more interesting country to live in and to drive across. You know, that's always been one of my key aesthetic requirements uh, or, or advantages of federalism is that it makes the country um, a more interesting place to drive across. Um, so anyway, the, <laughs> the events with Ezra went well. We were supposed to do a debate, but be civil. And how do you have a debate and be civil at a time of such incivility, all that kind of stuff. And the first thing in the afternoon was with um, an audience with like 700 or so high school kids the high school moderators of this panel we did were, were really impressive, sweet kids. They did a good job. And we talked about our hopes, our dreams, and all that kind of stuff and how we got into this business. We were both, both Ezra and I were on good behavior. I think this was the first time I've met him personally and God knows, maybe ever. I'm not even sure. Um, but in the early days of, I don't know, the blog wars, we were both remarkably uncharitable towards each, each other. And as I've sort of hinted around here a few times, I'm I'm inclined to forget old rivalries um, and old grudges and grievances. Um, I even retweet Matt Iglesias from time to time. And Lord knows we did not uh, get along famously for a long time. Um, and uh, I just think it's sort of a healthier way to live your life. And young when, as George W. Bush would say, when you're young and irresponsible, um, you do young and irresponsible things. And then the second thing, which was uh, moderated by Lila Fottle, and it was an evening event with grownups who paid for tickets, and um, supposed to be more of a like real policy kind of debate thing, and we got along fine and um, agreed on a lot of things, you know, dysfunction of Congress, all these kinds of things. 
um, had some disagreements about Israel things and whatnot. And it was kind of fun. I think I kind of horrified Lila Fottle, who was charming and lovely. She's an NPR host. I made the case that, and I've written about this before, I think I actually called a G-file structural anti-Semitism. I made the argument, which I utterly stand by, that, um, or I made the claim, which I utterly stand by, that if you take the logic of structural racism, institutional racism, all that stuff, the critical legal theory stuff about, you know, structural or institutional racism, if you take that logic and you apply it to the UN, I think it is unavoidable or impossible to dispute meaningfully that the United Nations is structurally anti-Semitic. And she was taken aback by that. And she said, you know, I want to move on from this topic, but, you know, I, I do want, you know, to hear what Ezra has to say about this claim that the UN is anti-Semitic. I, I can't remember if he answered and then I clarified, but I said, look, I didn't say the UN is anti-Semitic. I said, if you take the logic of the way the left uses logic about white supremacy, about institutional racism or structural racism, then there's no way to avoid the conclusion that the UN is anti-Semitic. And I didn't even get into like the, what is it, UNRWA, U-N-W-R-A, um, the fact that these UN teachers, which are paid for by the UN, teach Jew hatred as part of their courses in these schools and cheered Hamas. I just, I left that all aside. I just made the point that if you look at the way the UN singles out Israel, the only Jewish country in the world, and holds them accountable for their actions in a way that they hold no other country that commits comparable or far worse actions by my lights, you have to say, okay, that, you know, this disparate outcome reveals something, right? I mean, the whole Ibram Kendi thing about how you shouldn't judge intent which he lies about, but that's the formal form of his original argument was that you should judge policies based on whether or not they help or hurt black people, help or hurt racial inequality. And if they hurt it and don't help it, they are objectively racist. That's about as far as Marxism smuggles into a lot of that stuff with that sort of objectively racist stuff. It is a way to classify people as enemies of good things, regardless of what's in their hearts, because they could have false consciousness. They may not think they're the bad guys, but if they are, because of the objective structures of society, part of the oppressor class in one way or another, according to Marx and Marxists, then they are a problem, right? And so they're objective. Soviets and Marxists always love to say it is objectively true that so and so is a fascist, or it is objectively so that the ruling classes do these kinds of things, and blah 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 blah. And it's a way of sort of smuggling. It's a debater's trick masquerading as a kind of scientific certainty. And that's what Kindy does is he says, you know, if you don't agree with the policies I want, uh, you are promoting objectively racist things. And well, if and if if your policies lead to disparate outcomes that are negative, that negatively affect black people, that's racism. And I was like, OK, well, if that's the standard, right, if that's the logic that we're employing here then the UN is anti-Semitic because look, I mean, if you just count, go to UN watch and count up the dozens more times Israel has been condemned, censured, you know, whatever by the UN, by the general assembly, by other, by human rights council, all these kinds of things, you know, it's not even double or triple. It's not even quintuple the number of times, you know, Myanmar, China, uh, um, can't believe I said Myanmar, Burma, uh, Russia, Iran, North Korea, 
Syria, right? Countries that have actually committed deliberate genocide are condemned far less than formally condemned, you know, with votes and stuff and papers and whatever, um, than Israel is. And the only thing that distinguishes Israel from these other countries for the purposes of the UN's logic is that it's this Jewish country. Like even the stuff, you know, they smuggle in settler colonialism and all that. I've talked about this a million times. Like China is a far more egregious settler colonial power than Israel's critics claim it is. I don't think Israel is a partic particularly applies very well to the settler colonialism thing. And I think the settler colonialism stuff is garbage. But if I'm going to argue on their terms, you know, China is erasing ethnicities, erasing historic peoples and nations um, in Tibet um, in, in the, you know, with the Uyghurs, even, you know, with Hong Kong, it practices Han supremacy. You've heard me talk about all this stuff before. China's, uh, Russia's policies towards Ukraine fit the, you know, fit the rhetoric that is applied to Israel at the UN all the time far better. And you just go down a long list. I mean, Assad has killed far more Arabs than, um, Israel has and far more indiscriminately and just go check any given year how many more times Israel's been condemned. And uh, anyway, I think I'm right. This is one of these things that, like, I, I kind of believe is an important form of argumentation is to work with, even if you think the other side's logic or reasoning or criteria is deeply flawed, and I do, it's worth sometimes working with their logic to prove the, 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 the problems with their thinking on their terms, right? This was, as I've told you before, this was a big point of uh, Suicide of the West, my book. I wanted to argue why democratic, Western democratic liberalism, Western civilization, you know, liberal democracy, whatever we're going to call it, is superior to the alternatives, a point I will be returning to in a little bit, um, on progressive terms, in terms of like, you know, the, the, the way people like Ezra Klein and, and, and most progressives judge historically, contemporaneously, whatever, judge, you know, good government programs or good, good ends of political movements is by how good they are at providing human needs like education, food, shelter, prosperity, medicine. You go down a list. Um, I understand that people like Ezra um, tend to see those all as a function of good government programs. And sometimes they are. I'm not saying they're not. But those good government programs themselves are downstream of the prosperity um, and the politics made possible by liberal democratic capitalism. And by any measure, liberal democratic capitalism, capitalism deals with the problems most progressives care most about. And that doesn't mean... It doesn't fall short. It doesn't mean there aren't problems. But rather than make arguments about how, you know, democracy or the Constitution are divinely inspired and individual liberty is the greatest good, things, you know, I'm very sympathetic with, depending on how the argument is made. Those things don't convince people who reject those kinds of premises. So sometimes the best way to persuade people, and I think persuasion is important, is to work with their premises and lead them to the right conclusions. Anyway, the, the last thing about all that, which I just think was really funny, I think the thing was recorded, but I don't know if it's gonna be made public or whatever, so I don't think I'm mischaracterizing anything here. Um, and again, I got along just fine with Ezra Klein, and we agreed on a great many things, and he made a lot of perfectly fine points. Um, but the last question of the night, 
um, was from a college student and Fadl read all the questions off of cards that were given to her, um, or most of them, I guess. It was from some college student in the audience who said, given all that you guys have talked about tonight, about the despairing state of our politics and the shakiness of the international order, blah, 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 all the problems that we have today, what can you tell a young person, a college student in Ohio today to give them hope about the future. And I've gotten versions of this question a gazillion times. And for people here listening to this or longtime listeners will uh, remember uh, or, or recognize this point is I, I made a fairly standard point, probably put a few jokes in, I can't remember, where I said, hey, look, you know, if your sense of joy, meaning, hope, um, is dependent upon who gets elected every four years in a presidential contest, then you're not going to be happy no matter what, right? The real sources of happiness, and this is sort of an Arthur Brooksian point, which I've made for years, is, you know, the real source, we know what the real sources of happiness are. Right? It's like there, there's data, there's studies on this. And it's uh, faith, family, friends, um, experiences, uh, earned success, which I've talked a lot about here, the, that idea that you've made a meaningful contribution in life to the people and institutions that matter to you, that sense that you have been, um, that you're respected and valued, that you'd be missed if you were gone, that you're needed, that you make a unique contribution by virtue of who you are and what you've done. You know, like the government cannot give you a sense of earned success. The government can give you, can increase your net worth, but it can't increase your self-worth. And that if you want to have a joyful, meaningful, rewarding life that is still in really po not only possible, by historical standards, it's pretty easy to do, in this country, because this is still a good and decent country, and it means, you know, finding these things close to home. It means living a decent and productive life in, a, in your own community, with your own family, raising your family, all the, all the bourgeois virtue stuff I talk about all the time, right? And um, it doesn't mean you can't be involved in politics. It doesn't mean you can't, you know, try to make the larger, you know, society better and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't mean you can't care a lot about politics, but... If you care too much about politics, or if you think politics is really the solution to all your problems, you're just going to live an unhappy life. I thought it was a pretty good answer. It's certainly an honest answer, which makes it at least partially good. Lots of other ways to answer it, but that was mine. Anyway, so when Ezra says, goes last, and he says something like, and again, if I'm, if I'm mischaracterizing him, I don't, I'm not doing it intentionally, and I think I'm doing it pretty accurately. He says, look, I, I honestly think that that was a pretty despairing and depressing answer. He says, look, if you want to, if you're a young person today and you want to have hope about the future, there's, there, there's really only one thing to look to. And I was really interested in what he was going to say, because I didn't know what he, I mean, I truly didn't know what it, what this one thing would be. And he was said, revolutionary technological innovation. And, um... And he even said, you know, look, people have always had friends, but what's really exciting, what's a reason for hope is like, you know, things like artificial intelligence mastering the process of protein folding and, you know, drugs like Ozempic that uh, not only make people drink less and eat less, but like gamble less and, and get a, or get addicted to buying things on Amazon at two in the morning. That's a real cause for hope. And, you know, I kind of... 
I don't know if I laughed or, or, or despaired, but I definitely eye rolled and I kind of dropped my head and everyone laughed at my reaction to it. But I didn't, you know, the thing was over. But then people came up to me afterwards and asked, you know, what was your problem with that answer? And it's just been in my head because I just think it's a really, I mean, uh, God bless him for his honesty. I'm, I, I, I'm not entirely I'm not entirely sure or unsure or whatever that, that my friend Jim, Jim Pethokoukas might not say the same thing. I think my friend Ron Bailey might say the same thing. I know lots of like techno optimists, you know, cornucopian people. And Lord knows I like technological innovation for the most part. You know, a big part of my argument in Suicide of the West, which, you know, I get in part from Deirdre McCloskey, is that innovation is one of the reasons why things are, have got so much better over the last 300 years, why people got richer. And so there's, there's a lot to be said for innovation. But, you know, I told these people afterwards, I was like, look, if you're on your deathbed after a long life and you're reminiscing and you're looking back about it all, you're probably not going to say, you know, it was a great life thanks to those hoverboards, you know, thanks to Ozempic or whatever. You know, the, you know, I mean, Ezra even said, you know, People have had friends in the past, but this is different. Like, no, like you look back in the past, you look at like the meaningful things in your life and it's not going to be gadgets. Now, I'm all, again, I'm all in favor of the gadgets for the most part, right? Um, some technological innovations had real downsides that were just, you know, that we have to compensate for and fix and ameliorate and yada, yada, yada. That's all fine. But there's something really bothersome about that kind of answer to me. It's a very technocratic answer. It is a very sort of social engineering kind of answer. It's also, it kind of reminds me of Eric Vergelen's line, which I've tried to make famous about how under Marxism, the steam engine replaces uh, Christ the Redeemer as our salvation. And just this idea of putting your faith in material things to give you happiness and all that, I just think is a, is a kind of a pernicious way to think about the world and to think about all of these things. I find that a far more despairing answer to give a young person because first of all, for the time being, at least, this young person in Ohio, he has very little ability to have any impact on the rollout of these wonderful new technologies, right? It's, deny it's basically saying, wait on the sidelines until this cool stuff comes. Um, and my answer is like all about your own personal agency, about the pursuit of happiness individually defined and about how to live a meaningful life. And there are lots of gadgets that I'm really glad to have in my life. And I don't mean that in a dismissive way, right? I mean, we, we should be very grateful for a lot of the technological advancements that we benefit from. And we tend not to be. We tend to take them for granted. But when I look back on my life, um, even now, like there aren't a lot of good friends, never mind family, right, that I would trade for a better phone um, or a better diet drug, you know, obviously there's some, <laughs> there's some people on the bubble who I would trade, you know, not their lives, but just my relationships with them. But you get the point. Anyway, I thought it was funny and interesting. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could 
look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says what pictures do you want in your frame and you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof from grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life. Every mom loves an Aura frame named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So after I did that, Thing. I had to get back to D.C. because I agreed. Uh, my friend Andy Smerick, who's been on here a few times, Manhattan Institute fellow, really nice guy, very smart guy. He runs, he's running some kind of mini course seminar thing for young professionals. It's, it's like the nexus between teaching professionals about political philosophy and teaching political philosophy people about the actual nitty gritty requirements of, of doing policy, of being in government or of crafting policy. Because sometimes these two, the, those Venn diagrams don't overlap enough. And so these were like mid-professional, impressive people from the ones I got to know a little bit um, from a whole bunch of different places. And, and he was running these classes on various things. You've all spoke to the class before I did. And then I think Continetti was coming in later. So you've all did a thing on what is conservatism or something like that. And I think Continetti did something about the history of conservatism. And he wanted me to come in and talk about new right critiques, these post-liberal critiques of, of liberalism, right? And so when I'm using liberalism here, I mean it as the kind of, basically I'm meaning it, I mean it like conservatism, right? I'm talking about the classical liberalism stuff, the constitutional order, liberal democratic, you know, constitutionalism, a small r republicanism, the stuff I talk about a lot on here. Because the, the frontal assault on American conservatism from this new right, where you're talking about Patrick Deneen or Adrian Vermeule or anybody else, is really an assault on classical liberalism, right? The common good constitutionalism stuff is an assault on, on the constitutional order as like the Federalist Society types and people like you and me, or like, like me, I don't know who's listening, um, how we've long conceived of it, right? And that's what they're trying to overthrow. And so, you know, in my, I had a couple hours of downtime when I was in Ohio and I read these readings that they gave us and, or that he gave me for this discussion. I was uh, in this cigar shop in New Albany, really nice cigar shop. Can't remember what it's called, but it's right by the Hilton in this giant mall complex, if you ever get a chance to go there. And um, I kind of worry that the people there were wondering who is this weird guy in the back grimacing and muttering to himself as he's reading these pieces of paper. I don't know that I can do justice to the whole thing. I have these notes, which I never do. And even now I'm realizing a half hour in that I can't really do 
this in a half hour. Um, but I'll give you a broad brushstroke and I'll either write about this or I'll do a special episode about this at some point or something like that. But he gave us three things to read. I, as I was honest about it, I only read two because the third one was Hayek's Why I'm Not a Conservative. I've read that many times and I've talked about that many times. And so I didn't feel like I needed to reread it for the purposes of this seminar. Um, but the other two I hadn't read before and they were, um, very interesting. Um, one was, uh, why conservatism died or something like that. Hold on one second. Let me see if I can find it. Um, cause I don't have that in front of me. Um, well, anyway, yeah, one was like, uh, how conservative, why conservatism failed by this guy, Asconis, that's his last name. Um, I'll give you his first name in a second. Um, and then the third one was excerpts from this long essay. I went and found the original so I could read the whole thing, um, by Adrian Vermeule, who's sort of, I think still arguably the intellectual leader of this group. Um, but you know, people will differ. Maybe they think it's Deneen. Maybe they think it's this guy, uh, was it McIntyre? doesn't really matter. Called liberal and the invisible liberal liberalism and the invisible hand. Um, and I think that was an American uh, journal of American affairs or some such. It was a very frustrating read. I'll stipulate up front, make many, they make many fine points or, or, or true points or have true observations that I think they carry too far. I'm not saying everything in it was stupid or anything like that. I think this Iskanis guy is very smart. In fact, I agree with Iskanis's fundamental uh, insight, which I, well, I, 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 I agree to a point with his biggest opening point, which is that technology tends to um, be corrosive or can be corrosive to tradition. And that's his argument about why conservatism failed, is that technology has supplanted tradition, which he has as a just a big, you know, as I was joking about it, uh, both these guys talk about social capital and tradition as if there's just this one big strategic tradition reserve, and we've just steadily you know, run it down without replenishing it at all, which I think is just a really flawed way of thinking about both tradition and social capital. You know, he's absolutely right. And I, but the part of my problem is, and I mean, this is my problem with all of these guys on the new right, is the way they talk about this stuff is they make it sound like they've just, they're the first people to ever discover these arguments when like the effect of technology on tradition and settled ways of living is one of the oldest insights of conservatism. I mean, it goes way back. I mean, there's stuff in Burke about it. Um, Russell Kirk talked about it a lot. I remember the first piece I wrote, or one of the only pieces I wrote for Reason, I want to say in like 1999, made this argument. And you've heard me, you know, invoke its core talking points a bunch of times when that, you know, conservatives have this tendency, particularly intellectual conservatives, to want to argue with other intellectuals, right? It's it's sort of like, you know, the drunk who looks for his car keys under the streetlight because that's where the light is good. People who are really into ideas put too much stake in the power of ideas. I'm not saying ideas aren't important, as Richard Weaver said, and ideas have consequences. But ideas aren't the only drivers of history or events or culture or anything like that. And so I made this point in this reason piece years ago that, you know, however much damage, 
you know, some idea that escaped a lab in Germany, mutated in France and came over to the United States and infected people with it in universities. The automobile did more to unsettle traditional ways of life and communities than any ideas of, you know, that, that could be found in Herbert Marcuse's stool sample or anything else, right? I mean, like, you know, Rousseau, really important intellectual, but, but the birth control pill tells us more about um, societal changes than, you know, than anything he wrote. So anyway, my point is, is that this is not a new idea, but he treats it as sort of as, as this sort of blistering insight and put that aside for just a second. But that's that's his whole argument about why that's that's what he rests his argument on why conservatism has failed. And then there's this Adrian Vermeule piece, which is really long. Ideally, I would quote the whole thing to you. He basically makes this argument that liberalism rests. Again, we're talking about classical liberalism here, liberal dem democratic capitalism, free markets, all that stuff, that liberalism rests on a bunch of what he calls invisible hand systems, right? The obvious stated, you know, relevance here is, is, is Adam Smith's argument about the, the invisible hand, which often gets really abused because Smith wasn't actually saying there's an invisible hand. He was saying that to the outside observer, it was almost as if an invisible hand was putting these things into motion because there's this mass level, markets provide for this mass level of coordination that's not directed from above, right? I mean, this is the whole um, eye pencil thing where no one knows how to make a pencil, people from various walks of life, speaking different languages, worshiping different gods or no God at all, living under different political systems, logging trees in Indonesia or Canada and, and distilling paint in Delaware and coming up with rubber and wherever. And they all work together based upon incentives um, and price signals and all of that to come together to produce a pencil for pennies, if that, a piece in cost. That's sort of what the point of the invisible th hand thing is. It is, and anyway, that doesn't matter. He doesn't really dispute that. In fact, that's sort of his real problem is he wants a visible hand. And what Vermeule does is he asserts over and over and over and over and over and over and, and over again that there's basically no evidence that invisible hand systems work. That checks and balances, which is one of the things he attacks, doesn't work. There's no evidence, he asserts, that there's really no evidence that it works. He asserts that both the neoclassical and the Hayekian arguments about how markets work aren't true. And even when they are a little true, they are prone to all sorts of problems that invalidate faith in them. In fact, faith is a big part of his argument. He says over and over again that liberal democratic capitalism or liberalism is sustained by a blind and irrational faith, what he calls fideism, liberal fideism, which is just means blind faith, right, essentially, in this stuff where people are convinced it works, even though it doesn't. They bought into the theory so completely that they think the answer to any problems with the system is the application of a more intense version of the problem, yada, yada, yada. And he finds these things in virtually every aspect from law you know, he kind of insinuates that, you know, 
courts really don't get to um, this sort of adversarial system, right? This is what he doesn't like. He doesn't like adversarial systems. So courts are problematic because they get to the truth through adversarial, you know, uh, argument and fact finding. Um, he doesn't like free speech, you know, which he says, is, you know, talks about as the marketplace of ideas. And he says that doesn't work. It doesn't get to truth. As Hume says, capitalism, again, doesn't work. Checks and balances in our constitutional system don't work. The key thing that keep keeps saying over and over and over again in all these things is that the reason they don't work, which he asserts, and I don't think it remotely demonstrates, is that there's no one above directing, guiding, coercing the system to make sure it works properly. And he says, look, at least in the market system, there's all this Hayekian stuff about price signals and, you know, and incentives. But, you know, in politics, there's no price. In marketplace of ideas, there's no price system. So they're even more chaotic and unreliable. So I'll read you just so you get a flavor of this. This is from the marketplace of ideas thing. He says, this section on marketplace of ideas. As we've seen, the marketplace of ideas hovers perpetually, perpetually and, re- and restlessly between a tautology, truth is defined as whatever emerges from the conditions of free and open discussion, and an empirical thesis, conditions of free and open discussion do in fact, on average, and in the long run, tend to produce truth. This equivocation papers over the extraordinary weakness of the empirical thesis. The most that can be said is that there is no general mechanism to sustain it and no evidence that it is generally true, even on average and in the long run. He says, I'm skipping ahead. He says, in the past generation or so, we have seen democratic polities with expansive constitutional protections for free speech, emphatically including the United States, make extraordinary mistakes of policy based on distorted information and, and distorted ideologically inflected processing of information. Iraq and Libya leap to mind. Domestically, these polities have fallen subject to pervasive conspiracy theorizing, emphatically including the educated elites who process and discuss information and who partly shape the agenda for public opinion. Those elites who pride themselves on their discursive rationality and commitment to evidence are not obviously any less susceptible to the rationalization of political prejudices, nor any more open to evidence than the public at large. The idea that these groups will shape the public agenda in a way that systematically tends to cause truth to win out has no obvious foundation. Now, he makes very similar arguments about all these other supposed invisible hand systems, right? For checks and balances, he says, um, the liberal faith in checks and balances is powerful, even passionate. It also far outruns any mechanisms and evidence that might adduce to its support to support it. He says, there are three major issues with it. He says, first is the gap between individual incentives and interests on the one hand and inst- institutional incentives and interests on the other. What is good for Congress need not be good for individual legislatures and vice versa. The exact consequences of this gap are unclear. In one version, the gap between individual and institutional incentives is far less for the presidency and the executive branch. Blah, blah, blah. You don't need to know all that. The second problem, he says, is that there's no external enforcer, no hand guiding all of these things. And, you know, the hand is, he doesn't say it, but, you know attached to a king, a czar, something like that. He says, there's no external enforcer standing above the constitutional system of checks and balances to force the institutions to compete. They may decide instead that various forms of collusion, power sharing, or delegation make them better off in ways that undermine the check of ambition against ambition. Now, he's 
partly right about that, but we'll get to that in a second. And then finally, he says, the final issue is that the analogy to explicit competition in economic markets assumes away a critical issue. There is no price system in the constitutional order. The price system is, of course, the key mechanism that makes competition in explicit markets conduce to welfare. And he says, what, skipping ahead, what exactly corresponds to this in the market for constitutional checks and balances? There's no systemic reason to think that the equilibrium level of competition or that the balance of power resulting from the competition will correspond to any socially desirable state of affairs. If it does, in a particular case, it is a happy accident. Okay, so just so I don't blame you if your eyes were glazing over all of that, let me just sort of run through the points. I didn't want people to think I was being unfair. When he says, if there are any benefits from our constitutional system of checks and balances, which he doesn't necessarily stipulate there are, he says, these are essentially accidents. These are rolls of the dice where we actually had a good outcome. That's crazy talk to me, right? Just, it's crazy talk to me. I am totally fine with the idea that Congress is broken. Uh, if you've listened to this podcast for a while, you've heard me say Congress is broken many, many times. Um, over at Advisory Opinions, they keep eating food off my tray by talking about how their podcast should be the Congress Do Your Job podcast. Um, this is not a new argument. I agree that Congress has real problems. Talk about it all the time. But the idea that our constitutional system of government has never yielded any positive outcomes that can't be ascribed to random, essentially random error in our favor is ludicrous. If that were the case, you know, we wouldn't have a system that has expanded human freedom, freed slaves, uh, expanded the franchise to women, got rid of Jim Crow. You know, if you like Social Security and these new right guys all love these big entitlement kind of things. Um, if you like Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, you know, those things were produced by this system. Um, the decision to fight and win World War II was produced by that system. The fact that we are the, at least for now, the greatest superpower on the planet is not a happy accident of this system. It is the it's not, it's not entirely the result of the system because our culture has a lot to do with these things. But um, you can't just say this was all blind luck with our incredibly stupid dysfunctional system. If that were the case, why are all Western democracies on the whole more thriving, more prosperous, more peaceful than countries with all the alternatives, alternative systems, right? Um, so anyway, getting back to sort of his marketplace of ideas kind of thing, you know, he, he keeps stealing bases, right? He keeps wanting, he says, you know, the whole problem with marketplace of ideas is this idea that vigorous debate will, will get us to sort of fundamental truths and that that's how you discover things is, is, you, is you hammer things out, you debate things. And I want to be really clear, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, but that's not the only argument for a marketplace of ideas, for pluralism, for for uh, federalism, for the freedom to debate in, in, in a small d, democratic way, competing points of view. Part of that argument is that it yields more happiness, that it yields uh, more social peace. By stacking this to say it only, it doesn't lead to absolute truth as he defines it, 
he's just hand-waving away all the other benefits of a system that allows people with diverse points of view to live side by side in relative peace and harmony. You know, and this is part of his problem with, with constantly trying to compare everything to markets, right? When he talks about our constitutional system of checks and balances as being akin to a market because they're all invisible hand systems, what he's leaving out is that even in markets, he says elsewhere, you know, like there's no such, there's no perfect, normal people aren't perfectly rational and the whole marketplace of ideas things and the whole, you know, marketplace thing in general depends on rational actors and all that kind of thing. And he says, there's no, you know, we now know that people aren't really rational. And he's right about that. There's a lot of like neuroscience stuff that's been really interesting and in behavioral economics and all that kind of thing. But it doesn't do the, those facts which have some merit or those observations which have some merit and are not new. If you read the Federalist Papers, uh, you know that the founders thought that human nature was flawed and that's why they set up the system the way they did, right? That whole, if men were angels, we wouldn't need government thing. Like, it's weird how many times these guys will actually take insights to be found in the people who set up our system and turn them on their head to say, no one ever thought of this and this is why our system doesn't work, right? So the founders perfect, knew perfectly well that people could get riled up and be irrational, majorities could, minorities could, um, faction against faction, ambition against ambition. We, they, they knew that there was, you know, human flaws, human frailties built into this whole thing. This is why, you know, Irving Crystal says the American Revolution was a successful revolution is because it took into account human nature and all of these new things that people are saying about human, you know, irrationality and all these other things. These are just fancy scientific or scientistic ways of restating very old insights that go far back, you know, not just to the founders, but to, you know, the Bible, both the Hebrew and Christian Bible, about how humans are flawed, that humans, that human nature is corrupting, and that it requires, you know, effort to be right, do right, to live right. So I, I just, I, it always bothers me when people from sort of the social sciences come up with these papers and these insights about how human beings don't act like homo economicus. And they think it's going to wound conservatives and, and libertarians. When conservatives and libertarians, their whole, you know, worldview is informed by these insights. Anyway, so like with a market, you don't, no one, the, the way you come to prices, right, in a stock market or anything like that is not because every single buyer and seller is presumed to be rational, you know, the wisdom of crowds is such that it's the assumption is that particularly over time, the irrationally optimistic and the irrationally pessimistic will cancel each other out and you'll get something close to the mean and the mean is close to the truth. You know, one of the, the foundational ideas in this whole wisdom of crowds things actually comes from Francis Galton, who I think I talked about last week terrible racist father of eugenics, coiner of the term eugenics and all kinds of brilliant guy, right? Brilliant guy. And I don't think he was like intentionally evil. He was just misled by what Friedrich Hayek would call scientism, the misapplication of scientific or pseudoscientific or scientific modes of thinking in realms where they're not appropriate in realms where they can lead you to dangerous conclusions, particularly, you know, with like the Nazis was this idea that Humans were essentially instruments. Anyway, we don't need to get into Nazis. We can talk about Nazis another time. Anyway, 
I think it was Galton who first figured this out. I can't remember if he actually used this experiment or if someone based on his writing uses this experiment. But, you know, this is statistics professors will do this all the time. Social psychology professors will do this all the time. So they'll take a jar of gumballs and they'll ask the class to guess how many gumballs are in the jar. And, you know, 300 students will guess. And usually some kid will guess either exactly right or close to exactly right. And then they'll do the experiment again with a different jar or whatever. And the same kid will guess wrong, right? But some other kid will guess right and whatever. And most people will guess wrong. Either they'll be too high or too low. And what it turns out is if you take the gumballs and you count them, the median answer of the guesses, right? If you take, the, you take all the guesses and you add them up and you divide them by the number of students in the room, the mean, you know, the mean, the mean or average answer of the whole group is reliably either, it's not always perfectly accurate, but it is time and time again, really close to accurate and better than any of the individual guessers. And that's sort of the point is that the wisdom of crowds thing, the, the genius of markets is that it factors in different perspectives to find and, and sort of churns them up and averages them out to find equilibrium. Not perfect, necessarily perfect equilibrium or anything like that, but it does get to a certain kind of truth. And that, so, but like, again, I don't think you should apply this mathematical market stuff to things like the marketplace of ideas or to pluralism or even to checks and balances or anything like that. Because Truth isn't the only thing that you're trying to get out of this stuff. You're trying to get consensus, agreement, compromise. You take a whole bunch of people with different interests and you, in the marketplace of ideas, you say, what can you all live with? That's kind of like finding the average or the price of something in the marketplace of ideas. And it turns out that if you have systems that let people work these things out, you get things like social peace. You get things like tolerance for different points of view and different ways of living. The idea that there's no evidence that it works this way is just BS. He also leaves out the fact that, you know, yes, look, institutions make mistakes. Groupthink is a problem with institutions. Groupthink is a particular problem with institutions these days because our institutions are becoming essentially homogenized, ideologically homogenized, which leads to more groupthink. You know, they do these experiments where a group of crazy smart people are given some like, you know, erector set model to make or something like that. And um, a group of kids is given the job and kids often will do better or groups with one dumb person in them will often do better than groups with all super smart people because dumb people like kids sometimes ask dumb questions that puncture groupthink and yield to better results because questioning the premises that corrupt institutions when they get so full up of, of confirmation bias and groupthink um, is a really good way of getting to better results and better answers. And one of the reasons why like the GOP and the Democratic Party and, and higher education and all these various institutions are such a mess is that they have, particularly on the left, they've redefined diversity to mean superficial diversities rather than ideological diversities, intellectual diversities, viewpoint diversity. And it's viewpoint diversity that gets you closer to, to truths 
and doesn't lead you into all sorts of messes. But regardless, like he just sort of dismisses the role that responsible people play in these systems to guide debates towards positive ends. You know, it's funny, the one, it just occurs to me now, the one area of the one invisible hand system that he doesn't talk about, which I think is a good example of what I'm trying to get at. And I hope people aren't too pissed off about me doing this, but it's just in my head and I want to get it out. And yes, I may write about it, but whatever. Is science, right? He talks about courts and checks and balances and marketplaces and the marketplace of ideas and free speech and all these kinds of things. And he says, there's no evidence that any of these things work. Well, science is an adversarial system. It could be more of one, but the whole point of of the scientific method, scientific institutions, is they, this is why I hate the phrase settled science, right? What they do is they, first of all, first of all try to falsify other people's theories, right? They try to poke holes in these things, but they are supposed to be rigorously accountable to certain rules about truth-telling, about facts, about data, Sometimes they mess that up because human beings are flawed. We'll get to that again in a second. But science gets to truth through this sort of adversarial, inherently adversarial process. It's not mean, right? But um, there's a race to be the first one to prove something. There's a race to disprove somebody else's thing. There's a race to improve upon someone else's theory. That's good. Competition Adversarial competition between different centers of science yields better science. Let me just sort of cut to the chase here. All these guys, they have this really annoying thing, right? This is in Deneen, this is in Hazoni, this is in, in Vermeule, and this Asconis guy to a certain extent. They seem to think that if they can prove that liberalism doesn't work on paper, It'll just all come crashing down. That all you have to do is break this, what Vermeule says over and over again, is this blind faith in liberalism. And the scales will fall from people's eyes and they'll see it all. It kind of reminds me, there was a terrible movie, I can't remember the name of it, where Christopher Reeve, the guy who played Superman, he figures out some sort of like meditation device that allows him to convince himself he can time travel and then he can time travel and he goes back in time and he has this romance it was a terrible movie at least i think it was i haven't watched it in 40 years but he goes back in time and and hooks up with this woman in the 19th century or something and they wear nice costumes and oh it's great and then by accident he finds in his pocket a penny from the future where he came from and just seeing it takes him out of his uh, his, his sort of the spell that he put himself under and he's automatic, automatically whisked back to his to the real time. And when I hear these people argue, make these arguments about how liberalism doesn't work on paper and if you could just prove that, it would all fall apart. It's very postmodern. You know, this I used to make this argument all the time about the postmodernist crowd where, um, remember the Alan Sokol hoax, the social text hoax where this guy writes this, you know, uh, deliberately fake satirical paper for this journal called Social Text, which was run by all these critical literary people um, who want to say everything is a social construct, um, that there is no truth, that um, everything is sort of, you know, through institutions of power and, and, and it's all this Foucauldian, you know, and, and Nietzschean stuff, right? 
all these socially constructed myths. And so this guy who's a physicist basically wrote this paper claiming that, um, what was it, like quantum physics is basically an exercise in, you know, I don't know, heteronormative social construction and it's all mythological and fake. And, and like, I remember writing about it at the time, you know, the people who believe this stuff, I was like, okay, but like, if science is just this social construct and there is no real truth to it, and it's all just sort of this uh, lie agreed upon by society, why don't the planes fall out of the sky, right? Why did the atomic bomb work? There's got to be some empirical evidence that demonstrates that science, engineering, all of these things have some baseline truth external to ourselves that they're built upon. And they're built upon through this process of sort of adversarial science. And when I say adversarial science, I don't mean, you know, like people get scared of the word adversarial. The individual labs aren't adversarial necessarily with each other, though I'm sure they argue about parking spaces and whatnot. They're adversarial with other groups. That's a healthy kind of competition. You know, teamwork makes the dream work internally in the microcosm, but in the macrocosm, you want to like beat the other guys. And that's a healthy thing. And this, this worldview, which is one of the reasons why I think like, some of these guys are revisiting Woodrow Wilson is very much, uh, sorry, I know Adam hates it when I mention Woodrow Wilson because then you get that sound effect. But, you know, the progressives as, you know, typified, but by no means exclusive to Woodrow Wilson, hated um, the Newtonian view of the Constitution, of, of like, you know, the clock-making view and the, this comp, the, the competitive um, institutions. They liked it. They loved all of this language about the body politic, about how society, how nations were organic entities. And in the human body, you don't, you know, organs don't work against each other. They work with each other. And that's why all of those progressives in the 1910s, 20s, 30s in America and in Europe and, you know, whatever, they all talked about cooperation. Cooperativeness was the new hotness. And that, you no longer that old ocean of having competition, having adversarial relationships between institutions. That was antediluvian. That was um, uh, antiquated, no longer needed. We now knew enough to make all the institutions of society work together, um, all the oars pulling in the same direction. And of course, I believe they were all wrong about that. It turns out that you need this healthy competition between institutions. You need adversarial relationships. Um, otherwise, all sorts of terrible things can happen. Um, but it kind of that's that's where these guys are coming from. It is very much a um, right wingification of all sorts of historically left wing ideas. And um, um, anyway, so. What bothers me the most about all, well, there are three things that bother me about this and it's in, in both of their, both of these pieces that I read and also the other stuff that I, I've read is the unseriousness with which they deal with the problem of the alternative. You know, um, it's, it's kind of like intellectual whataboutism where they point to all the flaws in liberalism and liberal democracy or whatever you want to call it. Um, many of which I will concede, there are these problems. Um, they're not fatal problems. They're not disqualifying problems. They're problems that require us to commit 
to rejecting them, right? But like what they'll do is they'll say, you know, like Vermeule says several times that uh, liberalism leads to what he calls public choice problems. And what he means by that is that you get things like regulatory capture, you get politicians who are self-serving rather than public serving, you have um, collusion between entities that uh, become self-enriching and self-rewarding there because there's no external enforcer. There's no live hand to prevent these things. Um, you get all sorts of forms of corruption, sclerosis, whatever, because of liberalism, because personal incentives, self-interest will outweigh public interest. I a thousand percent agree that this is a problem with liberal democratic capitalism. I also believe it is a problem with every other friggin' system. And the idea that somehow there's this alternative system that has ever been invented that deals with this problem better than liberal democratic capitalism, I just find utterly otherworldly. I don't know what they're talking about. I don't, and they're not even talking about it. They just insinuate it. Now, maybe there is some place that, you know, it's not in Deneen's regime change book and it's, it's not in these essays and it's not in anything that I've seen from these people. It's just sort of alluded to or insinuated, or sometimes you'll get, you know, truly evil garbage like that guy who wrote, I think it was for American Affairs about how awesome Maoism was, right? But for the most part, they just, again, because it gets to this, this, this idea that liberalism is a magic spell that we've fallen under. And all you need to do to get rid of it is convince people it doesn't work on its own terms and it'll vanish. And so like, first of all, like, it's just not true, right? Most people, most people listening to this podcast who are more up on this stuff than 99% of the American people don't know a lot about liberal theory. I'm not trying to denigrate anybody, and I'm sure there's some professors out there who know a lot more about it than I do who are listening. But my point is, is that, you know, how much of Locke's second treatise can you actually quote from memory? How much Hume do you have, you know, um, a really great grasp on? Um, how, how much time can you talk to me about um, Montesquieu? Um, how many of the Federalist Papers can you really quote at any length? Most people do not mentally think to liberal theory and then say, okay, this is what I must do. We live in a liberal culture. We have a liberal civilization. We have ideas and, and cultural habits of the heart that are liberal, they may have been informed at some point by liberal theory, but they are not dictated by it. You could burn all the books on liberal theory tomorrow, and most Americans would still demand the right to a fair trial. Most Americans would think that they deserve free speech um, and freedom of religion. Most Americans think that they should be secure in their property and their possessions and not you know, subject to unwarranted searches. That's because the cultural stuff is is more grounded and more real than any of this theory stuff. And it actually predates it. Again, a big part of my argument in Suicide of the West is that a lot of the things that we, uh, that, that we, but also these guys in particular, ascribe to liberal theory first existed as, as cultural practice in England centuries before John Locke was born. You know, uh, you know the example I always use is, you know, the Fourth Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, you know, you should, 
be secure in your home and your property and your possessions and all that kind of stuff. That comes from an ancient English custom about how, you know, basically a man's home is his castle and it get, it got, it got worked into custom and then it got, then it got worked into written law and then it got, well, first they got written into common law and then it got written into statutory law and then it got written into some constitutions, but you got to do the order of operations for this stuff. Most of the founders, you know, when they were talking about, you know, why they ultimately came around to revolution is because they, we were first trying to demand their ancient British rights be respected, which were, you know, liberal rights. And these guys, they make this case that like somehow this was all just some mistake because people were really impressed with a paper that John Locke wrote. And if you could just prove John Locke wrong, it all falls apart rather than the fact that, as Hayek would argue, that this stuff emerged over time through trial and error, social compromise. Some philosophers added some, you know, some spice to it and some flavoring. But the reason why it took hold is because it worked. And it worked also in all sorts of like really just sort of basic empirical ways. The countries that adopted this stuff got richer than the countries that didn't. The countries that adopted this stuff had better armies and navies than the countries that didn't. Not always, not everywhere, but over time. This idea that somehow markets haven't yielded any empirical evidentiary benefit that is beyond happy accident, as Vermeule puts it, is just made up. It's just nonsense. Um, and all of these intellectuals who go into this stuff, they just sort of, they try to turn, it's very postmodern. They try to turn all that stuff, they take it all for granted. And to the extent that they, you know, notice it, they only point out the bad things about it. And there are bad things to technology, right? Um, there are bad things to liberal democratic capitalism. It, they, it's too slow to deal with some problems. These days, it's, it's too slow to deal with any problems. But what's the alternative? The idea that like China, communist China doesn't have public choice problems is just astoundingly stupid. I'm not saying that Vermeule says it. He just implies it. Maybe he doesn't think that's the case. The idea that the Soviet Union didn't, the Soviet Union was one giant fricking public choice problem where the party was parasitically living off of like an aristocratic class off the proletariat that they claimed um, they were there to, to serve. Problems with the Soviet economy, if you ever get a chance, read Why Nations Failed, had all to do with, you know, the lack of accountability, the lack of an adversarial system, the lack of a free press that could point out problems, the lack of a two-party system where one party could come in and say, you guys are doing it wrong, we can do better, the lack of uh, checks and balances of any kind. Um, so you got groupthink upon groupthink upon groupthink upon confirmation bias. You had people thinking that all you had to do was jigger the quotas or the incentives from above in ways. And so what ends up happening is that people you know, behave in ways to fit the, the paperwork, not to fit, fit the reality. Um, China is trying to unwind all sorts of problems that it's had because it had, you know, just, just public choice problem upon public choice problem. The Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party is inherently corrupt in almost every way. And the only reason that they are a, a, a military and economic rival to us is that they started down a path of implementing some of this invisible hand stuff. 
you know, again, China did not want to have markets of any kind. They were pretty committed to that. And they were so committed to it that when they tried to fix agriculture, um, they killed tens of millions of their own people. Mao was so pissed off by the failures of the system, he was convinced that the only way to fix it was to basically incite young people to terrorize, kill, um, or exile the people running everything for being imperfectly aligned with the perfect idea of, of Maoist communism. And when that didn't work, Deng Xiaoping in 1978 said, ah, oh, crap, all right, let's try markets a little bit. And look, Chinese markets were never my ideal of a market, but they were better than what they replaced. They were better than the massive public choice problem that they replaced. And when they started putting in markets, when they started having a kind of functional equivalent to the rule of law and adversarial systems with, with the bureaucracy, they saw massive economic growth. They saw, you know, millions, hundreds of millions of people lifted out of poverty. It's millions of people who could read for the first time, who could, you know, have enough food to live off of for the first time. And people on the left, you know, this used to be my beef against Tom Friedman. Now it's my beef against a lot of these jackwads on the, on the new right. They look at this, you know, authoritarian capitalism or whatever you want to call it, managed capitalism, and they say, it. oh, look at that success. It must have been the authoritarianism, right? When in fact it was the capitalist kind of incentive structures that, again, flawed, corrupt, still lots of public choice problems, but better than the alternatives that pulled that, you know, massive nation out of abject poverty. And that's the only thing that's ever pulled humanity out of poverty. You know, again, back to my book. Until about the 1600s, 1700s, the average human being everywhere on the planet lived for only about $3 a day. True in every part of the globe. Occasionally you get a little deviation from the mean because there's some technological innovation or there's some accidental improvement upon how to distribute goods and resources and incentivize people. But then the powers that be would clamp down on technology and innovation. They would clamp down on the new uh, you know, middle classes that were emerging, the new rival centers of power um, that were forming, you know, adversarial factions to uh, the unified control of the powers that be, and they would shut all that stuff down and back the average, you know, income would go back down to $3 a day. And that changed only once in human history. And it changed because in, in, in England and in Holland, they started putting in some of these invisible hand systems. And so like the lack of dealing seriously with the, and then what, right? What's your alternative thing? drives me crazy because I can sit here all day and bebop and scat on, on why our system is flawed and has problems. You know, it's the, it's, it's the worst system around other than all the other systems, whether, you know, whether that was Churchill or Shaw or whoever, it probably wasn't Shaw because Shaw was a jerk, but it happens to be true. And the idea that we haven't had progress and I just mean like, you know, the stuff I mentioned before about expanding democracy, freedom, and prosperity stuff. But like this, you get this all over the place in the sort of, in MAGA land too, this idea that our system is more corrupt than ever. It's just not, you know? I mean, again, it depends on what you mean by corruption, right? There are a lot of bad ideas running around out there. And, you know, and I have my own long take about corruption properly understood. But if you're talking about like politicians with bags of money or any of that kind of stuff, the system is, is wildly less corrupt than it was 50 or 100 years ago. 
contrary to uh, Vermeule, you know, Bob Menendez is on trial because he's corrupt. And that's not a happy accident of the system. That's a sign he's on, the fact he's on trial is a sign that the system is working. Couple last points. One of the problems that runs through all of, another one of the problems that runs through all of this is this idea that like liberalism doesn't produce truth, which we talked about. But what they really mean is this highest truth. Like, what is the good life? How should everybody live? That's why some of these guys, not the nationalist guys, but like so many of the post-liberal Deneen, um, you know, uh, hyper-Catholic guys, you know, they do all this highest good stuff is because it's basically an argument for essentially a confessional state. It's the argument that there's, there's one right theology, one ultimate truth that applies to everybody and everybody should be herded in a direction towards finding it, that more broadly, that society has a destination that we should all be going towards. And my problem with that, people get mad at me when I talk about teleology and the, and the word telos appears all over Vermeule and whatever, and Ascanus and stuff, whatever. We don't all have to go in the same direction. That's part of the point about liberal democracy and pluralism and subsidiarity and federalism and, and localism and, you know, and individual rights and the individual pursuit of happiness is that it makes it possible for people with different understandings of ultimate truths to live peacefully with each other. And this idea that the state needs to you know, march everybody to a singular destination is just one of these ways in which metaphors, you know, I don't want to sound like Heidegger, but like metaphors can lead you to all sorts of messy things. Vermeule hates this invisible hand metaphor and he thinks it corrupts everything. I hate these sort of metaphors about ends, that what are the ends of liberalism? What is it trying to get us to? This is the incorporation of religious thinking into um, and I have no problem with religious thinking. I just don't like it misapplied to um, political philosophy. Um, the ends of Christianity are the salvation of your soul, the salvation of everyone's soul. You have however you want to define it. I don't want to explain Christianity to people who know it better than I do. But my point is that that's never going to be, nor should it be, the point of government. Um, the point of government is to protect people from outside threats, you know, foreign invasion, that kind of thing, protect people from crime. You know, even Hayek talked about a certain provision of social welfare that you could have in a society, you know, that, that that's all fine. We can have arguments about how best to do that, about what a good welfare state versus a bad welfare state would look like. What is a reasonable amount of provision for the common good in terms of like minimum incomes or public schools or whatever. Those are all perfectly legitimate arguments to have, right? But the better metaphor isn't direction, isn't an end. You know, what are the ends of liberalism? It's space. It's, you know, it's the English garden. It's letting people find for themselves, both individually and as groups, right? Because the happy, happiest people are the ones who find the right group, whether it's their family or community or whatever, where they can live together because we are social animals in the right way. But it's letting people, plural and singular, figure that stuff out. And it doesn't have to erase tradition because tradition helps and all that. There are many different kinds of tradition. 
there's lots of new traditions that are coming up in America that are good. There are lots that are bad. There are lots of old traditions that are good. And there are lots of old traditions that are bad. We use reason and persuasion and logic and facts to adjudicate these questions. I wish we had more respect for tradition. Um, but, uh, and yes, technology has a corrosive effect, can have a corrosive effect on all this kind of stuff. If you had AI robots doing all the uh, barn raising in Amish communities, the Amish would be economically richer, but probably spiritually poorer. Um, these are perfectly fine points to make. I don't dispute any of them. But the idea that somehow government is supposed to figure out the ultimate questions for every individual and the ultimate destination for the entirety of society is authoritarian, totalitarianism, pick your ism on all of this. But it's not liberalism. It's not, it's not conservatism in the American tradition. And I reject it utterly. And it is so obvious that this is the fundamental argument underlying a lot of the, a lot of the smart people on the new right is this, you know, it, it really bothers Vermeule that there's no one in charge guiding everything. It really, you know, Escanas, I don't want to be too unfair to him because this is the only thing I think I've read of him. And I think he's, I, I asked people about him. I think he's a smart guy. He's probably a decent guy. And I'm not trying to beat up on him, but like this mode of argumentation, Escanas has this line in there in this thing where he says, uh, and he's quoting somebody else at first. He says, as Grant notes, before we recover a human way of thinking, we may first need to address a more practical question first posed by Nietzsche. Who deserve to be the masters of the earth? Corporations? The Chinese Communist Party? The National Institutes of Health? The Department of Defense? Or human beings living according to their natures? Now, what is he talking about? Who says these are our choices? Who says these are remote? Who thinks that like the NIH is the master of the earth, even figuratively speaking, right? Even, you know, in a sort of literary poetic license flourish. What is he talking about? The Chinese Communist Party is the master of the earth. We're supposed to agree with the Defense Department lurking behind the question, right? This sort of the, the, the thing that's being begged here is the, is the idea that there need to be masters of the whole earth, right? That there need to be somebody in charge of everything. When in reality, liberal democratic capitalism, when it works best, is that nobody's in charge of everything, nor should they be. That's the whole point in the Federalist Papers about how if you put all of the legislative, judicial, executive power in a single person, that's the definition of tyranny. Because it gives them the ability to wield what Locke and Burke called arbitrary power. Um, you know, Burke makes this fundamental insight that no man could be the judge in his own case. And this idea that, that you, you've already lost the plot when you phrase questions like this. I want the person who's in charge of the military, or I'm in the military, I guess that's the secretary of defense or the commander in chief, right? But like the military doesn't have, you know, like it, it gives people, it devolves power down to different people who have agency and control over what they're in charge of. That's how businesses work. You know, the CEO of Coca-Cola isn't in charge of the, of Pepsi. This division of labor, division of institutional responsibility, that's pluralism. That's, you know, there are people 
and the, I think this is actually one of these things that I think that people don't that I've been meaning to write about for years is like a rich life is one in which in some spheres you are a leader, but in other spheres you're a follower and in yet other spheres you are somewhere in the middle. And, you know, we have different identities and different roles in our lives and that's good. The idea that someone should be the ruler of every institution in every circumstance, that's monarchy or Caesaropopism, papism, whatever. Um, that's dictatorship. That's authoritarianism. That's tyranny. Um, and that's not how it's supposed to work. And it's not, that's not the system that yields better results empirically. Um, anyway, so like when you read these guys, you know, first of all, also, why the hell is he quoting Nietzsche? Like, really, that's who the new conservatives are supposed to be taking their cues from is Nietzsche. Um, in Vermeule, you know, I used to make this point all the time when I was talking about liberal fascism and I would get all this grief for it about how problematic it was, how disturbing it was that uh, Carl Schmitt, this German philosopher, you know, the crown jurist of Nazi Germany, was so popular um, on parts of the left. And, um, and right-wingers, you know, when I was in good favor, would say, you know, oh, that's really interesting and that's disturbing or whatever. And now I see these guys quoting Carl Schmitt as this authority on everything. Carl Schmitt, very smart guy, said some interesting things, right? Um, I think he had some real insights about stuff. But it's kind of like just worth reminding people he was like a super Nazi. He wasn't just like one of these, you know, like one of these guys who realized he had to go along to get along or he'd have his life ruined. So he started saying Heil Hitler and stuff. Carl Schmidt wanted to um, completely expunge uh, the Jewish bacillus from German life. He wanted, he, he, he was one of these guys who, who would make arguments about how, again, going very similar to like the postmodern garbage about, you know, the social tech stuff. He would make these arguments about Jewish logic and Jewish reasoning and Jewish science. He wanted every book written by a Jew in the library, whether it was on music or history or anthropology, it didn't matter. They should all be put together in the Jewish section and then hidden away from people so as not to poison them if they weren't going to be burned. And so the idea that we should invest too much in Schmidt's insights really kind of bothers me. Um, but maybe that's just special pleading from the guy named Goldberg. And again, I'm not saying that these guys are Nazis, but like it should give you a sense of where your ideas are taking you, where you say, Hey, you know, you know who really figured this stuff out? That Schmidt guy. But anyway, Ascanis at the end of his thing, he basically doesn't offer an alternative. His basic point of view is we just have to, we conservative, quote unquote, conservatives need to stop getting involved in, in, in arguments about old traditions. We need to create new ones. We need to become gorillas, right? This is this whole thing about this radicalism out there. It's like, well, we'll tear it all down and we'll figure out what to build on the rubble afterwards. And the, the extent to which, you know, the far right is becoming like the 1960s left is really just kind of amazing, amazing. And they're, psychological, cultural rejection of the status quo to the point where they want to just 
burn it all down. Yeah, sorry. So at, at the very end, uh, this guy Escanas ends his thing. He's talking about how conservatives need to become guerrillas, tear down the existing order and all that kind of stuff. And then he says, quote, realizing what time it is. There's that phrase again. Realizing what time it is that we are living after tradition isn't a council of despair. Those who look to build a human future have been freed from a rearguard defense of tradition to take up the path of the gorilla, the upstart, the nomad. We can bid farewell with fondness to the modern defenders of tradition. But we must heed the words of the Lord. Let the dead bury the dead. Come with me if you want to live. Right? So this is, this is rejecting all the old traditions, which includes like liberal democratic capitalism, liberalism, cultural liberalism, all this stuff in favor of constructing this new thing, which they'll be in charge of. I just utterly reject all of it. You would have no idea that there's a crazy uh, political thing going on right now with between Nikki Haley and Donald Trump. And, um, but we're going to talk up, we're going to do a lot of the punditry on the dispatch podcast, we're recording that tomorrow morning, Friday morning. So I figured I can keep some of that aside. I did write um, a G file about this stuff insofar as there is the, the, the drum beat is coming, right? I've seen this movie before. I think one of the reasons why Trump has so many problems with 20, 30% of of Republicans, of conservative-leaning independents, whatever the numbers are, you've heard all this stuff. There's lots of good punditry about all this. Um, is because they've seen the movie before, too. They know how this goes, and they just don't want to do it again. But a lot of people, maybe even Nikki Haley, at the end of the day, she'll support the nominee because she's a good Republican, whatever. You're going to see an enormous amount of pressure for people to... Um, bend the knee. I mean, even Donald Trump uses the phrase bend the knee now, apparently, to give in, to fully accept that the Republican Party is Trump's party and that the only safe harbor is to agree with Trump, right? You can do it out of love. He loves people who love him, or you can do it out of fear. A lot of these guys are coming out and endorsing him. They're endorsing him out of fear, not out of love. Um, I do not think that Tim Scott, I think Tim, Tim Scott, who humiliated himself on uh, the night of the New Hampshire primary. And, you know, we had that thing where he said, where Trump says, you must really hate Nikki. And he says, no, I just love you. He doesn't love Trump. I do not believe that he loves Trump. He loves the idea maybe of being vice president or being his running mate, but he does not love Trump. Um, these other people, a lot of these other people who are endorsing do not love Trump. The fact that they're waited till now to endorse in the first place is a sign that they didn't love Trump. But they do fear him. They fear what they can do to their careers. And the pressure from Fox News world, all the Fox News people, with maybe a couple of exceptions who will try to play it straight. You know, Brett, I think will try to play it straight. You know, I don't agree with every, every the results of every attempt, but I think he'll try. Um, but for the most part, Fox is just going to go completely in, right? Laura Ingram's already completely in. She was a DeSantis guy. She announces that, you know, tearing into Nikki Haley. Mark Levin is saying incredibly stupid things about Nikki Haley. They're all talking about how, you know, uh, we just had a great scoop today um, from uh, David Drucker um, on how the RNC is trying to sort of... Basically, forestall or short circuit this primary process and just declare Trump the presumptive nominee. There's going to be an enormous amount of pressure on people to say, you got to suck it up and support Trump and vote for Trump. And some people will do it because at the end of the day, they think Republican policies are better than Democratic policies. 
But all I wanted, you know, and I wrote about it much better and more coherently. Um, and if you're a subscriber, you can read it. Just you should know what you're being, what's being asked of you. Matt Gates, Margie Taylor Green, all the yappers, and you know, they're explicit about this. The Trump campaign is explicit about this. That if you disagree with Trump, they don't want you in the party. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene said the other day, if you don't agree with all of Trump's policies, um, we're going to eradicate you from the party. Accept her terms. Take them at the word. They're telling you who they are. They don't want you unless you are willing to be red-pilled for Trumpism. And if you're not willing to do that, don't do it. You don't owe them. You don't owe any. You don't owe people loyalty who show no loyalty to you. You don't owe people compromise who show no compromise to you. Um, and if you do feel, because you buy into the binary choice stuff and you really think that Biden is much worse and would be much worse, I think you're wrong and we'll have that conversation many, 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 many times. Go ahead and vote for Trump. But look around the last nine years and see what's happened to so many people who thought that they were voting for the lesser of two evils and then came to convince themselves that actually they were vo voting for a greater good that they were voting for someone who was actually good and decent and smart and knew better than them. This is the, being convinced, the transactional vote, the lesser of two evils vote, the binary choice vote is the gateway drug to this cult of personality. And this time around, Trump has lost any pretense of being transactional about this stuff. Before he was, I need Mike Pence to get evangelicals. Um, I need to appoint these judges because I need, you know, uh, people care about gun rights and abortion and, you know, the Constitution and all that kind of stuff. He doesn't feel like he needs to make those kinds of compromises anymore because he has won over all the people who convinced themselves that it was just a transactional vote, that they could still think he's a bad guy, but vote for him because he'd be better than Hillary. And a lot of those people have lost their minds in this regard. I'm not saying they're bad people. I'm not saying they're stupid people. I'm not saying they're all fools, but they have all been fooled. Like the most profound litmus test in the Republican Party right now, other than Trump is awesome, is whether or not you believe Trump when he says the election was stolen. And Trump has a super, super majorities among the people who believe the election was stolen, that believe Trump when he says the election was stolen. Now, again, they're not all fools. They've all been fooled. The election wasn't stolen. But this is the thing, that people who know that they made a bad choice want to convince themselves they've made a good choice. And so that's what we saw over four years of Trump's presidency. They said, hey, wait a second, this guy's awesome, because they didn't want to sustain the cognitive dissonance and the cynicism that said, yeah, I voted for a crappy person, and he's still a crappy person, but I've gotten some things I like. That's just not how most people are wired. So if you're going to go into this, um, go into it with eyes open, that there's going to be part of you that is going to be in danger of, of being corrupted um, by the sort of the lizard brain tribalism of our partisan environment these days. If this causes me to lose a bunch of listeners, so be it. You know, I don't, I, I've lost more book buyers and more readers, more Twitter followers by taking the positions I've taken for the last, was it, nine years vis-a-vis um, -vis Trump and what he's done to the right than I'll ever get back. And that's okay, right? 
it's pretty clear what I meant when I called this podcast a remnant, the remnant. My conscience is clear about all this kind of stuff. I, there are lots of good and decent people who email me all the time, say they're going to have to vote for Trump again and all that. And I, all I'm saying to you is watch out what it does to you. Some people sustain that, you know, the ability to concede he was a terrible person and horribly, horribly destructive, all sorts of norms and notions of decency and good character um, and good conduct, not just personally, but also for the party. And they, they were willing to sort of acknowledge that he brought in all of these terrible forces into our politics. And most of those people who were able to recognize that didn't vote for him again in 2020. If you could watch January 6th and all that, and if you could watch the four years of his presidency and you can watch what he's said since then and say, oh, well, this time will be different, then you just want to be conned. Then you, you're owning the decision to be fooled. And it's going to do things to your soul. And so I'm just, I, I just want to be clear. You were warned, you know, and I don't know that many people are listening at this point anyway, but uh, that's where I come down on this. I'm not going to change regardless of how stupid Biden acts or what Robert F. Kennedy Jr. says or any of that kind of stuff. Trump is fundamentally unfit for office. He's made it clear since he lost that he's even more unfit than I thought he was in 2016. That's it. Period. That's not going to change. The people who constantly say, you know, what will it take to persuade you? Uh, how about watching Trump be a responsible, decent person for 72 hours? Like, I'll set the price really low. But I don't think it's going to happen because character is destiny. And he's proven he has a grotesquely deformed character. I pity any decent person who is thinking about being his vice president. Because there are only two possible outcomes. Either they are humiliated and destroyed the way Mike Pence was. Or they are utterly corrupted by their complicity in, in joining forces with all this. They are not going to be a check on Trump. They are going to be a footstool for him as he gets up on a white horse. And I'm not saying he's going to be Hitler. I'm not saying he's going to be a dictator. I do think he's going to try to be a dictator. At the very least, I think he's going to try to be the living hand that these guys so desperately crave. And it just violates my conscience and my sense of right and wrong um, to contemplate voting for this guy because it might be better for tax cuts or something, or he might kill more terrorists. Um, there's no policy issue that... Um, you can convince me to vote for the guy in part because I don't think the guy can be relied upon for any policy. All the policy stuff that all you people who voted for him in 2016 and felt like you made the right decision, all that stuff that you like and that you throw in my face constantly in email and on Twitter and you know, all that, um, all that stuff was the result of the good and decent people who I had my disagreements with, Trump felt obliged to surround himself with. From, you know, the Bill Bars and the John Kellys and the Paul Ryans and Mitch McConnells. Those are the people that channeled him towards productive ends. They won't be in the picture. Trump now thinks that he has a free hand to be full Trump. And he has surrounded himself with people who tell him that every single day. And 
you, I just, I, I didn't mean to do this long thing, but you should just have your eyes open. So with that, thank you so much for listening. I feel like I left a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor. Um, and, uh, I'll talk to you next time.